Namaste and welcome to Radio Eka. Eka is a yoga and meditation app from India and our focus is to help you learn the various yogic tools such as pranayama, yoga nidra, meditations, chanting and asana. The purpose of this podcast is to understand more about these practices and delve deeper into the history, the philosophy and the science of yoga. If you want to try the app, you can download it from the iOS or the Android stores and also use the code RADIO to get one week free access to the app. Namaskar, my name is Shruti Deora and I'm the co-host of this podcast by Radio Eka. As part of the COVID well-being series, today we'll talk about lessons from Bhagavad Gita for COVID times. We have the honor of hosting Carlos Pomeda today, who is a world-renowned scholar of Indian philosophy. Carlos has been steeped in all aspects of the yoga tradition during 40 years of practice and study. He spent 18 of those years as a monk of the Saraswati order under the name Swami Gitanand. Along with traditional training, his academic background includes a master's degree in Sanskrit from UC Berkeley, and a master's in religious studies from UC Santa Barbara, both in California. Carlos currently lives in the Bay Area as well and conducts seminars and workshops on the wisdom of yoga around the world. A hearty welcome to you, Carlos, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sruti. It is my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Bhagavad Gita is called an evergreen text. From yogis of ancient India to management gurus of the modern economy, it has been touted as the panacea or the solution to all our questions about life, universe, and everything. But over the past 18 months, as a society, we have had a novel experience, a global pandemic in a world that's interconnected like never before in history. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what lessons we can draw from Gita to deal with these challenging times and looking ahead as some parts of the world begin to emerge from it. But let me just first start by asking about your journey in the yoga tradition over a few decades now. So you're originally from Spain, attended graduate school in Berkeley, and spent a lot of time in India. So how did it, how did it all come about? <laughs> well, it's one of those things that you have to say. Reincarnation exists. <laughs> and that's what, um, you know, what drives our our journey really because it's really when I, I remember when I saw the first it was a poster that was advertising meditation and I really didn't know what meditation was but I felt this pull like this is something I have to do it's very interesting I mean how do you explain that right unless there is like like an, an awakening or a stirring of some buried memory because the mm -hmm. same thing happened to me with Hatha Yoga. And it was exactly the same year. It was 1974. Same experience. I saw a poster that said Hatha Yoga. And again, I didn't know what Hatha Yoga was. I didn't even know what yoga was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I felt the same thing. There was something inside that told me, you have to do that. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. that's how I started my journey. First, I, I learned to meditate. And I remember that. There was an introductory session where we were sort of explained the, the basic premise of the, you know, the type of meditation approach that is about emptying the mind, 
Mm-hmm. And there was something they said in that, in that session that really intrigued me, that the mind could stop. Now, I had never thought of that before in my life, right? So my question became, well, if the mind stops, what is left? <laughs> and you know that's what that's what led me to meditation and and it changed my life it changed my life and then it was like i think three months later so is when i came across hatha yoga and for, the first thing i did because there were no easy easily accessible classes in those days is i i bought a book and my experience reading the book, which explained the methods of uh, Shivananda, you know, for Swami Shivananda from Rishikesh, it was, a, again, a very interesting experience. I felt as if I already knew these asanas. And it was mm. more like, my, it felt to me more like I was remembering something. So that's why I was saying, you know, it, it's got to be a reincarnation for sure, because otherwise... <laughs> Um, there's no way to explain how how that felt for me and how it was. It just felt very natural. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It really changed my life um, completely. And then a couple of years after practicing on my own, I met my guru and that also receiving initiation and then making um, a, a deeper commitment to the path. That's what led me to... To become a Swami, and then by becoming a Swami, I got to spend a lot of time in India. You know, the traditional training. Uh, when you live in an ashram, basically that's what you do, right? You practice and practice and practice and study. And also, I had the opportunity to travel, so I started traveling a lot, and pretty much all over the world. Well, I've never been to Africa; it's one continent I haven't been. Well, I guess. Antarctica either. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so that in a nutshell has been my journey. And then at one point I started feeling that I wanted to go deeper also from an academic perspective, because I think it's important to marry the two, mm. you know, to bring the rigor of academia. It's something I really appreciate about academia is the intellectual rigor, the methodology, right? It, how do you build knowledge um, cautiously, properly, on strong foundations? How do you investigate a topic? But at the same time, I think it's, it's super important when we talk about yoga, any kind of yoga, to nurture that also with the insight that only comes from practice. This is, yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot, of course, just through study, and you can develop a certain insight, it's true. But at the end of the day, yoga is, is practice, right? And you have to experience the transformation in your own awareness, in your experience of being alive day to day, to really appreciate everything that yoga has to offer. And so I've, that has been, ever since, has been my, sort of my formula, if you will. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know what to call it, but it's, it's my approach, right? To, to marry the, the two to bring as rigorous as we can an approach to our study and at the same time to continue digging deeper and deeper and deeper through regular practice because there's no shortcut for insight you know it, it just have to pay your dues day after day after day after day after day <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think it's it would be safe to say that your life path is that of of jian yoga you know like really focusing on marrying the awareness with the um, you know, with Swadhyay. 
So that's wonderful. And I think your life story is very inspiring. I think it's a, it's really a shining example of how we can find joy if we follow our heart. Um, so I, I, we're so glad that you had the courage to do that because I think in today's society, it takes a certain kind of courage to follow your heart. So thank you. <laughs> that's great. Um, now moving Actually, on to, I, to be yeah. honest, I couldn't have done anything else. <laughs> I, I feel a tremendous sense of gratitude. And, you know, you were talking about the pandemic and same thing when the pandemic started overwhelming gratitude to the tradition and to all the great teachers that have passed on this knowledge to us because it really is what gives meaning to my life and is what sustains me and has always sustained me in times of crisis and i just felt that there was no other possible direction for my life so for me it's it's a gift right i feel like i'm the recipient of all this compassion and mm. and earnestness and care of all the teachers right that come before us mm, that's wonderful COVID. so it has caused a lot of upheaval in people's lives and their emotional state but now as we are conducting ourselves and handling our emotions during these times what would you say are the top three learnings from Bhagavad Gita that we should keep in our minds? Mm, the top three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are many, so it's probably hard to yes. say top three. <laughs> <laughs> there are many, but, but you're right. There are some, it's one of the things I appreciate about the Bhagavad Gita, well, and like many other, other texts, but since we're talking about the Gita, is that there's, if you study the whole thing, there are some consistent running threads. One of them that becomes very, very clear is the importance of cultivating a centered state of awareness. Really speaking, I think if we, if we look into it carefully, that seems to me to be the heart of yoga. Right? What does it mean to have a yoga practice? Well, it's not just to get your body into a pretzel shape <laughs> that may have you know I'm, I'm not i'm not making fun of hatha yoga because it's a fantastic form of practice and it has lots of benefits but my point is that the physical aspect cannot go alone right it is at the end of the day it's a practice of awareness through the body so similarly every form of yoga that you look at uh, the heart of it is the practice of awareness and in the Bhagavad Gita, it is very clear whether you are talking about karma yoga, the yoga of action, uh, it is based, it cannot be any other way on, on retaining your center. Mm. Whether we are talking about bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion, is the same thing. <laughs> there you are centering your life on the divine, but still it's, it's the same cultivation. And whether we are talking about jnana yoga, which is really a yoga of awareness, I actually, I prefer to translate jnana yoga as a yoga of awareness rather than yoga of knowledge, because that can be mm -hmm. misleading. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, really, if you look at the heart of it, is the cultivation of awareness. So for me, that would be number one with a, like a, with a big asterisk and underlined and in bold and maybe italics. <laughs> 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 I don't want to exaggerate it, but really my point is that 
I really think that is the is the heart is number one. The other aspect that I find very 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 powerful uh, as an emphasis in the Bhagavad Gita is the notion that yoga is not only for us, but we are here to improve the world. Right? So the the Bhagavad Gita calls it uh, loka samgraha. I mean, literally, you could translate that as holding the world together. Mm. The literal meaning, but um, usually it's translated as the welfare of the world, which which is true. And local, of course, as you know, is not only the world; it's also people, right? The world also means people, and I like that very much because I think there's a danger in yoga to glorify selfishness, right? If, if I say, "Well, I'm just going to look at my own navel," right, and the world out there can take care of itself. That is not really spirituality, in my view. That is selfishness mm. in the name of spirituality. And I love that. I love that what the Bhagavad Gita teaches us. Look, there's no contradiction. You know, you can have your cake and eat it, so to speak, right? You can, you can practice your awareness, and at the same time, you can act in a way that benefits the world. And I feel very strongly about this. I think we have a social responsibility. So many people in the world of yoga don't want to get involved in politics. Now, I totally understand that because I detest mm -hmm. politics. <laughs> in, Especially in, in the current times. <laughs> Especially now, yes. But at the same time, I think we have an obligation, an actual mm -hmm. obligation as citizens to do our part, you know, to inform ourselves as best we can, to participate in the process, to try to bring more civility, which is really missing now. So that I find a, a really timely teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, that uh, we are here not only for our own self-awareness, but also to, to live behind a better world. It's a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> and then um, when number three is a bit trickier because there are several candidates, but one teaching that I find refreshing and also vital is how the Bhagavad Gita seems to internalize things that were originally external. For example, I'm talking specifically about renunciation, right? Because you hear a lot this glorification of um, detachment, that if you are a yogi or a yogini, you have to be detached. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, particularly if you look at chapter 5, is very clear that it says, look, renunciation doesn't really mean just giving up actions and giving up things physically. That's not the point, right? Because, in fact, there's a, there's a verse that always makes me chuckle in chapter 3, where Krishna says, if you are living, you know, trying to control your senses and so on, but inside you are dwelling in the objects of the senses he says you're a hypocrite <laughs> <That's the word. laughs> yeah yeah right and so that is not really about the lifestyle you might live the lifestyle of a renunciant but that's not true renunciation that's just a lifestyle and uh, i think people confuse those two things all the time and then what chapter five makes clear is no renunciation is a state of being in which you don't feel hankering about things because you, you don't depend on things for your well-being, right? Because your well-being primarily comes 
grown within, right, from self-awareness. I also think that's a crucial, crucial teaching. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. I feel like giving you a title of modern guru yeah, <laughs> because you're telling us how to marry the ancient wisdom with the modern context that we find ourselves in. So that's that's, that's great. <laughs> it's very kind of you, but actually I, I would never dare call myself a guru. I'm, I'm just a practitioner and happy to share with other fellow practitioners. So. <laughs> okay, so, you know, Continuing this topic on, um, you know, yoga in Gita. So Gita says, yoga karmasu koshlam, or yoga is skill in action. Mm. So how how can we move skillfully in these stressful times? And what do you think in terms of karma yoga? How do we apply the notion of karma yoga to modern times, and especially in a pandemic? Oh, that's a huge question. How much <laughs> time do we have? <laughs> Sorry, we don't have, I mean, yeah, I wish we could go on for a few days, but uh, we'll start with a few minutes for now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was just looking before, um, you know, just before we connected, I was looking again at uh, this chapter two, because it really is my favorite chapter of the entire text. I think if we only had chapter two, it would still be a complete text. And particularly the introduction to Karma Yoga, I think is it's a perfect in, um, perfect answer, really, to what you're bringing up. Um, this is, I'm talking about verse 38 here in chapter 2, right? and it says, uh, that means regarding pain and pleasure equally. Right? And it, it doesn't mean that you don't see the difference, because again, many people interpret this like you're in a sort of otherworldly state where you don't feel anything. That's, that's not the case. Actually, the more you're aware, the more you feel and the more you can see clearly, right? But it means that inside you are not affected by both. I say whatever you get or whatever you lose or whatever you win or whatever you, um, you are defeated in. Um, so, if you maintain that uh, that attitude, and it says, Yudhaya Yujyashwa, you know, it's, it's hard to translate or so many expressions, particularly in chapter two, that are related from the root Yuj, you know, the same root from where yoga comes. Mm -hmm. um, they are hard to translate because we don't have an equivalent, say, in English. Right? It, it's, uh, I translate it as uh, cultivate mindfulness, right? Because we were saying that's the essence of yoga. So when it says yujyaswa, well, okay, uh, you can translate it as yoke yourself. But literally, that's how most people translate it. But it means more than that, right? It means with awareness. But here's the point that I was getting to. If you do that, you are not incurring bad karma. Hmm. And to me, that is the heart of karma yoga. Because then 39 says, when you apply this, well, this is, um, the verse begins like that, you know, this is what was taught in Samkhya, right? Which is the oldest system. Uh, it says, but if you apply this, it says, right? if you, if you, again, yukto, right? If you yoke yourself <laughs> mindfully right? with this awareness, here's the key sentence. Karma vandham prahasya si. You will avoid 
the bondage of karma. I feel that karma yoga has been distorted in popular discourse because people are presented as the yoga of selfless service. But that's not the point. That misses the point because you could be doing selfless service and still creating karma <laughs> mm. if you don't have the proper awareness. Right? Got uh, it. If you... If you are, you know, like bragging to other people about what a wonderful person you are, that you contribute to so many causes and you <laughs> volunteer and so, you know what I mean? That's coming from your ego. That, of course, that is creating karma. That is leaving a residue in your subconscious. <laughs> that is a form of karmic conditioning. The key to karma yoga, as these two verses make quite clear, is to avoid the bondage of karma. And so going back to what you were quoting in terms of the, the, the definition of yoga as karma uh, or shalam, skill in action, I think the real skill primarily is the skill of acting without creating karma. Mm. But that is not so much a practical skill, because that really is not the domain of any yoga tradition, any yoga text. Right? They, don't, they don't really talk about how to be a skillful at any Pain, well, like, like meditation, of course, <laughs> right? And awareness, but but it's not about practical skill. I don't think the verse is really talking about practical skills, but it's talking about the state of awareness with which you act. Now, interestingly, is if you do that, that's a skillful way of being. I mean, you you are more open to inspiration, right? You can see more clearly. And therefore, I think the logical conclusion is going to be that you are much more likely to act in an effective way, practically speaking. But it all originates from inside. And, and so for me, that would be priority number one in the practice, in the application. It's like we were saying before, is find a means, whatever practice it is for you, but find the means that connects you with your center. And everything unfolds from there. And mm. so when we look at a crisis, for example, a lot of what happens is the upheaval that, that, that we've seen in, in the pandemic or in any other crisis, really. It's an emotional upheaval. And of course, it is natural. It's natural. And I think to some degree unavoidable also, right? As humans, uh, we have emotional responses as part of being human. And there's no problem with that as long as we don't lose our center. And what I, we have seen with the pandemic, well, of course, there's all kinds of position, right? But the two extremes are on the one hand, freaking out. You yeah. know, the sky is going to fall. Oh, my God, it's the apocalypse. I'm exaggerating, but, to, you know, to make the point. And at the opposite end of the spectrum is nothing to see here, no problem, denialism. Right. Both of them have been really, really, really unhelpful, particularly, I think, denialism. Mm. Because at least the person who is under fear, at least they're going to do something sensible to protect themselves. But the people who've been in denial mode, uh, they're actually endangering everybody else. All the rest right. of us, right? Because they 
they see something that is a medical issue, scientific issue, like wearing a mask, they politicize it and they see it as an expression of freedom, and so, which is really silly behavior. But I think the ultimate reason for this, if you look at the people who resonated with all these messages, right, conspiracy theories and all of that, have been people who've had trouble accepting the reality, hey, we are in deep doo-doo. There's a new virus out there for which there's no cure. Mm. And we are in big trouble. And human, a human response very often is uh, denial. Human mm. response to crisis. We humans are not very good at accepting positions that challenge our our preferences our preconceived notions and so on this is demonstrated right? i mean it's a psychological fact and you know like if you have an emergency for example very often the cognitive lapse uh, there's a significant gap of time before the person realizes oh i'm in danger i have to do something about it because your brain has trouble processing that there's danger so this denial, although it's very understandable, is incredibly dangerous. Uh, I mean, we're still seeing the consequences of people refusing to take the vaccine, and as a result, making the whole pandemic longer for everybody else, therefore promoting or allowing for more mutations, otherwise, yeah, on and on and on, right? And it all comes from denialism. So if you practice self-awareness and if you're mindful of your mental responses and so on, chances are you're going to be much more able, much better equipped to not fall for that. Mm. And the same, of course, goes to the other end of the spectrum, right? The, the freak out like, oh my God, and the fear. Fear can be helpful, self-preservation, but beyond a certain point, is not helpful at all. So for me, the, you know, I guess in, in summary to your question, that would be once again, the emphasis is don't lose your center, cultivate your center. And that will, that's the true skill, right? How to don't lose yourself when you're in crisis. Right. Actually, that brings us to a good segue into my next question, you know, talking about fear and denial. So on a day-to-day -day basis, we are not really obsessed with our mortality, right? We live in areas of the world that do not have chronic conflict. Thankfully, we have good me medical facilities. We typically take our life for granted. But COVID has changed that, and it has brought us face-to-face -face with this biggest fact of life. So would you like share with us some verses from the Gita that might have inspired you, you know, on this topic? Yes, well... I Again, it's not, not like directly, my favorite verses are not directly related to um, the fear of mortality, or but, but what we've been talking about today as um, sort of a running thread, uh, the mindfulness, right, the centeredness. And they are verses that I think, if, if for me, they encapsulate the entire Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. And... I can say without exaggeration that there are verses that have changed my life. And there are verses that have guided me for many mm -hmm. years. I'm talking about verses 48 and 49 in chapter two. Uh, they are well known, but also I think sometimes they are misunderstood 
they need to be read very carefully. There's one verse that I remember hearing, you know, even when I was in India, meeting people and sadhus and so on, and they would recite this verse. But sometimes there's like, as I said, there's different interpretation, right? The verse says, your adhikara, and that's the key word there for translation, is your adhikara is regarding actions. Now, a very common mistranslation is your right is to action. And it doesn't really make any sense. Never to the results. And I think, I suspect that the translation might have been contaminated by this uh, puritanical Protestant mindset where life is about abnegation, it's about duty, and it's not, you should renounce the results, or you shouldn't work for results, but only out of duty. So many translations of the Bhagavad Gita have gone into that line. I, I thoroughly, completely disagree with that interpretation. I actually think that the Indian tradition in general, even though, of course, it has taught us about the value of, of this passion and all of that, but the, the Indian tradition, as I see it, as you look at the history and the culture, is one that celebrates life very deeply, you know, at the same time that is reminding us, a hey, look beyond, right? <laughs> because there's more to life than meets the eye. It also celebrates life. I mean, you see that already from the Vedic tradition, you see it in the Bhagavad Gita, certainly you see it in the Tantric tradition. So I think it's a mistake to interpret these verses in that way, right? Like act out of duty, forget about the result. That to me is also irresponsible. Actually, Mahatma Gandhi, in his commentary on this, says something similar. Right? If I remember correctly, he says something like, this is why my country is the way it is. You know, He said, because people are saying that the results don't matter. And I'm paraphrasing because it was many years ago, but I remember I was saying, yes, I'm, I'm really with him on this one. So you can have a philosophy that says, never mind the results. That's, that's irresponsible, right? It's inconsistent, in my view, with, with yoga, which is about living mindfully. So, adhikara, really, if you look at it, just the dictionary meaning, means jurisdiction. Right? Your adhikara is your area of control. Mm. Right? Like in the Indian civil service, the, the secretary <laughs> of a ministry is the adhikari. Yeah. Because really, he is the one who is, I forget, the ministers come and go, right? It's a political appointment. <laughs> but the Adhikari, the secretary, is not a political appointment. He's the one really running the show in the ministry. Exactly. But, and I think that gives us a, a clue to reading this verse in a way that is helpful, which is your jurisdiction is the action, not the results. So the verse is not saying that the results don't matter but that really what you control is the action. You don't control the results. Right? Mm. So if you do that, then yeah, don't be attached to inaction either. Right? That's not an option. You have to do something. And when it says don't be motivated by the results, I think that only refers to during action, right? During action is not the time to be thinking of the results, but it cannot mean Common sense tells us it cannot mean that you never should consider the results. 
again, that would be irresponsible. Then, mm. you know, then why do anything? No, I think we should consider the results before we engage in action. But the verse is telling us once you're acting, realize that now your jurisdiction is the action, not the result. So don't be projecting yourself into how great that's going to be or how awful that might be, because then you're dividing your attention. So I think that if you if you read it that way and you apply it, it really changes. It, it, it's a way... Is teaching us to apply mindfulness to action. Mm. And of course, that then is developed farther in the next verse, 49. That one is my favorite, by the way. If you tell me choose one verse, I would say 49. And if you tell me choose one sentence, I would say the first sentence of that verse. It begins, Yoga sta guru karmani sangam dhanam jaya. Siddhya Siddhya Samo Bhutva Samatam Yoga Uchyate. Beautifully says, Yoga Sta Kuru Karmani. Right? That's, I think that one sentence summarizes the entire Bhagavad Gita. It's established in yoga. Yoga Sta Kuru Karmani. Perform your actions. Mm. That's exactly what we've been talking about, right? It's, it's mindfulness in action. But that is the practice. That's the practice of Karma Yoga. So, first, Yoga Sta. You have to establish yourself. So that's why I was saying before, choose your practice, whatever practice, but connect with your center. Then perform your actions. And that's where he says, Sangam um, having abandoned attachment, because some people misinterpret that as that's like a prerequisite. No, no, no. It's the consequence, right? When you're in your center, you are in a state of dispassion. Because you are centered. So then the next line makes sense. Becoming the same in success or failure. It doesn't mean that success or failure doesn't matter, that they are the same. No, they're not the same. That's ridiculous to say that they are the same. <laughs> if you fail, it's not the same. But it means that in your center, you remain the same, right? You, you're not going to be thrown off by these two things, you accept it because that's what's happening, right? And that is actually then the definition of yoga, the final part of the verse, samatvam yoga uchyate. Mm. And again, people tend to translate it as evenness of mind. And no, 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 the verse just says balance. I think it applies to every level, not just the mind, right? Mm. This balance, this equipoise, that is yoga, that is centeredness. So, for me, that that's is beautiful. Yeah. So, actually, would you take a few minutes to just talk to us about your book, uh, Karma and the Journey of the Soul? Ah, yes. Well, this is a project that I've been working on for many years. It's a topic I have been researching because, you know, I never had trouble accepting reincarnation, karma. First, intellectually, when I first came across the teaching, I remember the first text that I ever read from India was the Ramayana. And I came across there the notion of reincarnation and karma. And all of a sudden, everything made sense. <laughs> <laughs> I had been brought up as a, as a Catholic, and it did, to me, it didn't make sense. As a young person, it was like, well, what's the point of life? You know, I didn't choose to be born, and then now I have to live forever, and I could go to hell forever. It just... It, Mm. I couldn't relate to that understanding of life. 
And I remember when I read about karma and reincarnation, I said, this makes sense. So you mean life is like a school and we are here in evolution. So, oh, okay, great. So that was my first introduction to it. Then um, in, in meditation over the years, I had experiences. To me, is an undeniable fact. The survival of the soul uh, after the body dies. It's only the body that dies. We don't die. Mm. And so then delving in, in the broader traditions, right, you have uh, there's several tantras that dedicate a lot, of, a lot of space to the discussion of the different realms of the universe and the different types of, of beings that exist and, and the notion of evolution and so on. Same thing in the Puranas. Uh, particularly, there's a text called Garuda Purana, which, as you know, is very is very prevalent in in India, very much used around death and issues of death. So all these texts, and including also the epics and so on, you have a, a wealth of of knowledge, traditional knowledge about the process of reincarnation, what happens, what happens after death, and so on. What has happened within the last? the last generation really is that there has been a lot of investigation uh, really academic research on the topic of reincarnation mm. there was a professor professor Sinclair in uh, in Virginia the university who started a methodology for the study of reincarnation in fact he actually founded what is called the division of perceptual studies in the University of Virginia, where they developed a very strict set of criteria for the investigation of reincarnation. For example, children who remember previous lifetimes. And then when you verify their memories, turns out that they check out, their memories are correct. And there's no way that these children could have known all those facts. Right? Mm. So he developed a methodology and that research has continued, has expanded. Then hand in hand, we had uh, Dr. Raymond Moody out of Harvard. They started um, exploring what has been called a near-death experience, right? People who die clinically in an emergency room is actually much more common than they thought. And they come back to awareness yes. and, and they tell us what they've experienced. Uh, so those are the two major avenues of investigation. And there's a third one that is emerging also, which is in hospice care with terminally, uh, you know, terminal patients or people who are just about to die and what they start seeing, what starts happening. And what I find fascinating is how these two, the traditional narrative and the modern research, how well they match. <laughs> mm -hmm. There are some universal aspects of the experience that have nothing to do with gender, with age, with culture, with religion, nothing like that. And so what I'm doing now is I'm bringing more of this modern research. I already had a first draft of all the traditional part. <laughs> and now mm -hmm. what I'm doing is looking at the, the, all this contemporary research to, to marry the two, because I think they present a very compelling picture that actually gives tremendous weight to the notion that, of course, we do not disappear when the body dies. That's just the body. The body is just a covering, it's just a vehicle. But the soul, of course, remains because consciousness is beyond time, is beyond death. So that's what I'm hoping that the book will bring, that it will bring 
by marrying these two branches together, the traditional uh, knowledge and, and the modern research, that it will give people a chance to look at it and say, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's not a crazy thought. It's actually, there's a lot of evidence. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really nice. I feel that um, a lot of ancient civilizations kind of knew this for like thousands of years ago and modern science with its really great methods, but still limited methods is yes. catching up now. Um, yes. So that's wonderful. And I think that brings us um, to the close of our conversation, but it was really wonderful chatting with you, Carlos, and we are really grateful for your time. And I would say having the chance to tune into your wisdom channel. So we hope to get more such chances again. Thank you so much again. Thank you as well, Shruti. Thanks Take for your care. time. Bye. Bye. Bye.